This is the Annex of Sociology podcast. I'm Joseph Cohen from Queens College in the City University of New York. Today, we're going to talk about the anti-vaccine movement with two terrific scholars who are well-known and well-respected experts on the topic. We have Richard Carpiano from the University of Riverside and Jennifer Reich from the University of Colorado at Denver. Anti-vax coming up next. Our discussion was recorded on December 8th, 2021. We are here with Richard Carpiano and Jennifer Reich, two well-known experts on the anti-vaccine movement to talk about an issue that has just about blown my mind. I I mean, I, I can't believe what I've seen over the past year. And I was just dying to know what the experts think. And we have two great ones. For those of you who don't know, our first guest is Jennifer Reich from the University of Colorado, Denver. Jennifer wrote the well-regarded book, Calling the Shots, Why Parents Reject Vaccines, with New York University Press. Welcome, Jennifer. It's, it's great to have you here. Thanks so much for having me. And Richard Carpiano from the University of California, Riverside, whose publication list is so long that it made me feel bad looking at the webpage. So I had to avert my eyes. You might remember Richard came on three years ago to talk about the anti-vax movement in the annex. And uh, well, I mean, a lot has changed in the past three years, probably for both of you. First of all, let's start off with this. I know that we have substantive questions, but I've got to start off. What has the past couple of years been like for the two of you? Like this has really been, you know, when the moment has come for your research. This seems like your moment has come. What's been going on in the past I guess, a year for both of you. Jennifer, you want to start? Yeah, I mean, it turns out that it takes 10 or 15 years to become an overnight success. Um, but, you know, more seriously, I, you know, I started studying vaccines, not so much because I wanted to study vaccines as its, its own biomedical product, but I had just finished writing a book about the child welfare system and was really interested in the tension between the state and the family and when state actors can tell you how to parent and what that means. And I really wanted to look at it in a way that didn't focus on the big institutions sociologists usually go to to think about the state, welfare, criminology, immigration systems. I wanted to think about sort of daily life. And that brought me to vaccines. And I'll actually tell you, when I started studying this in 2007, not that many people thought it was an interesting topic. And I actually got one review that said something like, do we really care what white women do? And that would, you know, and I thought, okay, I'm going to finish this. I'll refer to it as my sophomore album. And then I'll move on to something more cheerful, like drug addiction or homelessness or something else. And then, and it took me a long time to really feel like I got the story right of how parents come to make decisions about vaccines. And I wrote Calling the Shots in 2016. And I was really preparing in 2019 to start thinking about a new book project and thinking about something different. And then I found myself like everyone else in spring 2020, suddenly watching every moment and trying to figure out how, not just whether it would go well or badly, but how badly it could potentially go. And that really has become the last two years of my life. <laughs> I guess the answer was quite bad. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I'll say like starting in spring 2020, when the Trump administration announced Operation Warp Speed, I started panicking, not just that a vaccine for COVID could go badly, but really that a vaccine handled badly could drag down consensus on all vaccines. Mm. And we were already seeing declining support for childhood vaccines. And so that sent me, I think, into a anxiety spiral that led me to spend most of the last year and a half writing op-eds and really just trying to weigh in and bring some sociology to the public conversation. 
Yeah. And maybe just beg people to get vaccines. Maybe, but I also feel like vaccines and vaccine manufacturers and government agencies owe it to people to assure them that they're trustworthy. And I wasn't mm. sure that any program called Operation Warp Speed, where the head of a pharmaceutical company was going to oversee the process, was really going to do a lot to renew faith in the vaccine science and distribution. So there were some, I think, good questions to have and that I'm a strong believer that people have the right to good answers when they have good questions. That's a great point. I want to follow up on that in a moment. But first, I want to introduce our second guest, Richard Carpiano, who three years ago gave me my first introduction to the world of anti-vax. And, you know, I went back and listened to that old episode. And it was a back then it was a, a small niche of people who didn't want their kids to get MMR vaccines or like the whooping cough. But it felt at the time like it was, you know, one of those small scale social phenomenon that we find where we delve into a deep corner and we find a little group that teaches us something. And in the past couple of years, this small niche interest has blown up to take over like a fifth of society or something along those lines. Richard, what has been happening to you in the past three years since we've spoken to you? Because I bet it's a lot. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, first off, thanks so much for having me. And it's, and it's just awesome to be here, here with Jennifer talking about uh, about these issues. Yeah, and three years is a long time. And uh, I, now, unlike Jennifer, I got into it much more from, uh, from a social or a public health problem standpoint with it being a I'm a sociologist and public health scientist sort of hybrid that I was trained. And so when the, when the Disneyland measles outbreak occurred, number of years ago. And then we were, uh, you know, that, that was something that grabbed my attention coincidentally, right when I was going into a sabbatical. So that became kind of like sort of new focal area with a little bit of inspiration from a graduate student. And, and, and Jennifer's work has been just so, been so important for me. So it's great to be here with her. I do a lot of work around vaccine acceptance and hesitancy, but I've also been an, uh, for people who might follow me online on social media, I do a lot of work following the anti-vaccine movement too, which I, I do less sort of scholarly work around. I, I do more sort of public engagement work around that. And years ago, that was still kind of viewed as a fairly sort of fringe, but yet still problematic activist set, I guess you could say. Yeah. It would be a way to, way to phrase it. And now we've seen that really with COVID, you know, and I'm, I'm going to fully own it here. I, you know, I really thought when COVID came about that I thought, well, well, at least, you know, now this will be something that might suck a little bit of the wind out of the sails of the anti-vaccine movement. You know, for so long, there was this argument of, well, we're just such a we're such a privileged country that we've never really had to deal with an infectious disease pandemic. So vaccines are victims of their own success, as the cliche goes. And so now here's to be something that will remind everybody about just how dangerous they are, how, how much we really need vaccines. And they won't really have anything to go by. And, you know, I'm going to own it. I, I really naively thought that. And here we are almost two years now later, and we see that it's morphed into this multifaceted beyond vaccines now to so many other things. And maybe these are things we'll, we can get into uh, later with some of our discussion here. But that's essentially where I, I've seen things. And then the other thing is, I mean, it's also shifted our focus on work that Jennifer's done and, and so many other people prior to, to the pandemic. We were very focused on child vaccines because, you know, that's really when you get most of your vaccinations. And so it was really about parents' decision making and things that very much tie in with uh, with Jennifer's book, for example, which is really terrific, I want to say to your, to your listeners, and I really highly encourage that they should read it. But not that it wasn't an issue before, that hesitancy and, and anti-vaccine sentiment around all vaccines wasn't an issue. But, but now we see this much more of an issue as well, as now adults have to go and get uh, yeah. something that's a lot different than just their flu, annual flu shot. 
Can we start off just with a basic insight to what's going on with people? I've been very surprised at how many people in my personal life who I never thought would have been against vaccines. When push came to shove, I found out they were very opposed to vaccines. And it left me scratching my head like, what's going on? How do people get to thinking this? I feel like it's an old technology whose merits have already been well established. Like, what's going on with people? You know, I think there's a lot of things happening and um, around this that in many ways are unsurprising. So, you know, what I find in my research that I think is equally applicable to how adults weigh vaccine decisions is that everyone really sees themselves as an expert on their own health, an expert on their own body, an expert on their children, and that they trust their own judgment more than they trust that of experts. And I'm pretty sympathetic to this perspective because what we've seen over the last several decades is public health has really become an industry of personal behavior modification rather than actually community solutions. And we saw this with the jogging craze in the 70s. We can think about the many apps you can download to count your calories, count your steps, support meditation, improve sleep, track how much water you drink, right? The the idea that you're a personal risk manager all the time creates this illusion that you can avoid disease if you work really hard at it. And it turns out that while you can lower the risk of certain conditions, you can't completely ameliorate risk by yourself because most disease is some combination of genetics, environment, and bad luck. And that's never more true than when it comes to infectious disease. That infectious disease is entirely beyond individual control. But that vocabulary of that kind of individualism and personal responsibility for health or what sociologists have called healthism is really powerful. And it's not unique to vaccines. It's everything we talk about it. And it's underscored the wellness industry for a long time, many, many different kinds of uh, diets and food modification plans, right? We can think about this as just an overarching vocabulary. And when we get to vaccines, what we run into then is the idea that vaccines are given to healthy people to prevent a hypothetical. So Hmm. it's not the same as being sick and needing medication to treat you. What you're doing is you are choosing something that presents minute risk of an adverse reaction against the possibility of becoming infected with a disease that could kill you, make you very sick, or in some cases do very little. And so what we see during COVID is sort of an acceleration of all those same forces that we saw before COVID, which is to say that each person feels like they're capable of doing their own risk-benefit analysis. They are absolutely inclined to overestimate the risk of a vaccine and underestimate the risk of infection. And what I found in my work with childhood vaccines and how parents talk about their decisions, but it applies throughout, we see this in COVID also, is that individuals who perceive themselves to be young, healthy, to have good nutrition, to take vitamins, to support their health in other ways, really believe that COVID will not be serious for them because they work so hard on their health and that they have good underlying health. And the challenge with all of this, of course, is that even though there were early efforts to identify risk categories, which included age, body size, and underlying health conditions, each person is an N of one. And so knowing risk does not make you able to predict your individual circumstance. And yet what you're probably seeing with your friends and what many of us are seeing with our cousins on Facebook is that each person really sees themselves as best able to decide. And if you don't trust the vaccine because you don't believe it's entirely safe, you don't believe it's entirely necessary, you don't believe COVID is as serious as reported, which is showing up in some opinion data, then the vaccine seems less important, particularly Hmm. if you think you can control the worst parts of infection by yourself. Hmm. Richard, anything to add? Yeah, I want to add on to that. I mean, I I think that's just 
it on, but uh, also this really gels very well with a very American ideal of individualism, too, in, in, in a way, of how we think about healthism. And then tied with that is now we have a pandemic, and we're not used to thinking about infectious diseases and about how our behaviors impact other people. Yeah, sure, there's smoking and secondhand smoke, and we, you know there's a bit of that. But otherwise, on sort of a broad national or, or even North American, we certainly extend this to Canada too, this idea that our behaviors have some sort of impact upon others, that we have to think about risks that we pose to other people, is really very much a foreign concept for a lot of us. I mean, we think about I mean, we're very fortunate. What, what are the major killers in the United States? You know, they're, they're, it's heart disease, it's cancer. You know, in most cases, those are not things that, you know, I, I eat a cheeseburger, it's not going to affect uh, your health, Joe, or, or yours, Jennifer. You know, it's uh, think, things like that. And so this idea that now I have to be thinking about my behaviors and my activities, not just for my health, but can have impact for other people, I think is also a very difficult for people to grasp from this idea of a very individualistic, again, view of, of health that we have in, in our country, in our country culture. You know what that answer reminds me of is I know that when I studied personal finance, I was left with the impression that many people had difficulty dealing with probabilistic events. Like they didn't, they had trouble processing the concept even. And so, for example, people were resistant to buy health insurance because they figure they just won't get sick, not understanding that just because you didn't get sick, it, it didn't happen. But it's also like, I could see how somebody would feel personal responsibility, but there, there has to be a leap from there to the doctors are lying. Scientists don't know anything. Like, how do we get from you're responsible for watching your health to you know better than scientists? Where, where does that come from? You know, one of the things you started with was you said, you know, vaccines are old technologies. Why are we doing this? And I think that's worth pausing and taking apart a little bit. So one is that vaccines have existed in many technological forms for more than 100 years. And that is an old concept. But the science itself has shifted and changed over time. And that's not necessarily reassuring. The other thing is that you have to remember that most of the vaccines that individuals are encouraged to use, whether it's childhood vaccines, or even the handful of adult vaccines that are now available, have for the most part been around for a while. And so when we think about polio vaccines, measles vaccines, rubella, you know, we diphtheria, which no one's even seen in a long time, tetanus. We think about these vaccines, well, they've been around our entire lives for most of us. And that means that we accept that they've served a purpose, that they've been tried and true, and that although there's absolutely folks I've talked to in my work and Rich has followed very closely, that will point to the fact that vaccines are never necessary. They don't work. I've talked to people who said that polio went away by itself and the vaccine just got credit for it. But barring that small number of people, most people see that there's a purpose to vaccines, but they don't treat every vaccine as equally important. And so in my work, I hear people take sort of a cafeteria style approach. Like, I think polio is serious, don't care about chickenpox vaccines. Because I remember having chickenpox as a child and it wasn't that bad. Or if I have a girl, measles is important because she could become pregnant, but I don't care about mumps for a girl, but mumps for a boy could be important because it could cause sterility in adolescence. Like hearing people parse out that risk benefit links us to that individual question. And I think that's a really important thing to acknowledge is that vaccines are not all one thing. They don't work in the same way. And the COVID vaccine, one of the things that's been really hard is that we really are learning as we go. And information changes often as new information becomes available. 
it's worth acknowledging that new scientific insight is very expensive. You know, it's cost a lot of human suffering and human lives for us to learn about best you know, practices for treating the disease and what things work and what don't. And that gives people pause, like newness makes people nervous. I think the mRNA platform, which is a new platform to be used in this capacity, it's been used in other smaller scale ways, made people nervous. And the backdrop to all of this, and Rich will be able to talk about this, I think, exceedingly well, is that if you're thinking about what would encourage people to really trust the technology and trust the safety, we have to acknowledge that we've made this decision culturally that vaccines will be developed, tested, and manufactured by for-profit pharmaceutical companies. And I found myself in the very awkward situation prior to COVID talking about my research and finding myself in the place where parents might be mad at me and pharmaceutical companies really like me. And as a sociologist who can see a lot of the flaws of pharmaceutical companies and the ways that they have not proven themselves trustworthy historically, that's a really strange place to find myself in. But that is, in fact, the way we've done public health in the U.S. is we've doubled down on for-profit companies. And, you know, if we go back to Operation Warp Speed, the ill-fated named um, Operation Warp Speed, what that really was was an effort to take taxpayer dollars and give it to for-profit pharmaceutical companies to encourage them to do science better and faster. And you have to believe then that the government, the state, right, the FDA, the CDC are rigorously monitoring that process, even as they're financially invested in it. And I think that there's a reason to take stock of that and see how much we believe that that was handled well. And unsurprisingly, there's a huge partisan divide, both at the early days under the Trump administration and the later days under the Biden administration about people's beliefs about those processes. I think that, Richard? Oh, I was going to say, and to add a, a further example to that of where we really see the problems with this is think, think in the early early days of the vaccine and its sort of its development and its rollout. We would see early morning news. We'd see a Pfizer representative appearing on business shows or on CNBC, and it was always coincidentally right around the time that markets were opening up. And and, you know, and those things do nothing to instill any sort of public confidence, and really just double down on these sorts of existing concerns and distrust that people have of big pharma. And with that then comes also the concerns around conflicts of interest with or collusion with big medicine. Hmm. And uh, and then in this case, big government. And so, hmm. so you have these vast sorts of institutions that are very mysterious and really, in terms of transparency, very difficult for the average person to grasp. And certainly then it becomes very easy for this kind of mistrust to be sowed. Operation Warp Speed was kind of interesting, too, because it showed that you can develop all the technology you want, but having the uptake, having people actually buy into the technology and go along with it is really, really important. It was interesting. We developed the vaccine, and then we fell behind other countries that hadn't done it. We basically got a head start. It's quite tragic in a way. It really fits in, I think, Joe, in many ways into a general belief that technology will always save us. What's Silicon Valley doing these days? What's the latest TED Talk kind of hype that we, you know, and so in many respects, the, the Operation Warp Speed, in terms of that science and engineering innovation sort of focus, really, I think, highlights that. There wasn't really any, yeah. there was very little sort of focus on education, sort of getting it, getting ahead of, the, of messaging, thinking about public communication with it. It was just this idea of if we build it, they will come, to pardon, pardon the uh, movie quote. And with that, that was all that was really needed. And, and we, we learned that it's, it is a very different thing to develop new technology in a lab 
versus disseminating it, whether it be public acceptance to uh, just logistics and manufacturing and, you know, and rollout and accessibility. One of the things that's really important to note, I think, in all of this is if you look at the diagrams and the organizational charts from Operation Warp Speed, there was this moment where it's like a picture of a factory and it's like the factories will develop it. And then there was an airport with FedEx exclusive contract and then that's it. And people in public health were watching this saying like, well, how are you getting it from the airport to people's arms? How is that happening? And that was never in the drawing. It was never in the schema. And it was really never in the imagination of what needed to happen. The other thing that's really interesting is that, so one of the things that most people don't have uh, an appreciation of is that just to say a couple words about vaccine processes, you know, we, uh, everyone's learned way more about the clinical trials process than they ever wanted to know and understands all the phases of it. And, you know, and we have an emergency use authorization that interestingly was developed by the Bush administration post 9-11 as a way of handling potential bioterrorism that had really only ever been used once before for a very small rollout of an anthrax vaccine, but it's a new legal process that allows a pharmaceutical product or biologic or vaccine to be used in times of pandemic or or biological threat without full FDA licensing because that would take too long. But it has to demonstrate efficacy and safety. And once that happens, it's not the end of the story when it comes to vaccines because the FDA has its own advisory committee that's made up of people who don't work for the government who evaluate all the science and data to decide if they want to recommend it or not. And if that happens, it then goes to the CDC, which has its own advisory committee on immunization practices, which then also looks at all those data and makes recommendation on how a vaccine should be used. Mm -hmm. So the idea is that FDA maybe is the arm that says, should it be used? And then the CDC says, how should it be used? And that's the group that's been around since the 1960s that develops all those charts and vaccine Mm -hmm. schedules for people who have children and picturing the recommendations and when I talk to members of ACIP, they explain that they don't just look at the study for this one vaccine. They look at how it interacts with other vaccines and the timing of vaccines and the spacing and then try to make the best informed decision at a public policy level. So when we had COVID vaccines rolling out with Operation Warp Speed, all those things happened still. But when it got to the ACIP, the ACIP did this thing that, and I, I know many of the members of ACIP, I think ACIP is amazing. I stream every single one of their seven hour meetings and they are not social scientists. They are physicians, immunologists, and scientists. And what they did in this decision-making mm-hmm. process for COVID was way out of their lane, which is mm-hmm. to say they decided they were best able to decide socially who needed the vaccine first. And they said that they had two goals to keep key institutions operating and to save lives. And if you think about it, which sociologists always do, those are not the same people, right? Saving lives took them to people over 75 and key institutions took them to essential workers and it should have taken them to brown and black communities. And so even from the way we structured the rollout, it was doomed to fail (laughs) because Mm -hmm. it was trying to do two diametrically opposed things with limited supply and capacity and no additional immediate funding on the ground for how that was going to happen. And that's worth acknowledging that in some ways, unsurprisingly, inequality was baked into the recipe with the way it was written. And that was, there were discussions about racial disparities around mortality from COVID. There were conversations about what needed to happen differently. And there was this real tension in the room over that social determination that a group of scientists and researchers were trying to make about the social considerations of this. Yeah, it's amazing. It's such an incredibly important public health project, and they were almost entirely blind to the human element of technology. I mean, I would have assumed that one of you would have gotten a call in all this if they had wanted to consult 
expert in the social pressures of vaccine. But uh, no, they were just sort of, I guess it, they people tend not to think of the, the human aspect of technology. One of the most interesting conversations, oh, sorry, Rich. Oh, I was just going to just add uh, to, I was going to complicate this even further. So we talked about how do we get these into arms, as Jennifer nicely brought up. Let's also not forget, too, that public health and public health programs, especially around vaccination, run at the state level. So then that rollout gets even further complicated with the, and basically for any sort of policy, you're getting this sort of 50 state plus territory natural experiment in terms of mm-hmm. how states will either petition for money, if there's money even available, how they will organize this more or less effectively. And then let's not also forget just the, the different demographics and the geographic types of constraints and opportunities, and we don't have to always be negative about this, that different states confront too. And so to think that even so much of that got overlooked as well, that was just a, it only adds further to the problem. Can you tell me a little bit about the people who have become enmeshed in this anti-vaccine movement? You know, I think a lot about earlier this year, I did an episode on cults with uh, Craig Rawlings, and we were talking about people commit mass suicide or they have just zany ideas. And I asked, How do you get people to believe such absurd things? Mm -hmm. And what Craig told me was that a lot of it is people expressing a fidelity to a group that they're part of. It's not really even about the content of what they're arguing, but they just feel bound to groups that officially express insane ideas. And so people will defend those ideas and profess an adherence to them just because they feel strong social ties to the other people who are part of their movement. And I get the sense that some of that is involved in the anti-vax movement, like they're all mutually aware and they seem to get their information from the same people and they have the same lines and they're plugging into the same media. Can you tell us a little bit about the anti-vaccine community? Who are they? What are they like? What have you seen of them that was remarkable to you and you think goes a long way towards explaining who they are? And Richard, can you start us off? Oh, I was going to say, actually, Jennifer would probably be the best. Oh, really? Yeah. But, I, right. but no, no. But but yeah. Um, well, okay. I'll I'll add I'll add the the, the area that I that I know best, mm. uh, which is thinking about the very extreme end of the vaccine hesitancy spectrum. And so those are the people that are really politically motivated, that have really made this sort of a, a movement. And I'm going to just focus on on just really the pandemic time period with this. We definitely this is. Some of the protesting, some of the tactics that we've seen are, are not that new. We've seen these before in terms of state house protests. We saw them here in California with some legislation that was in 2019 in terms of uh, showing up to the state house in, in mass or showing up to public meetings and using uh, shouting down or you know really getting your group together to make it seem like a real presence and, and being intimidating. With it. But we've we've definitely seen much more of an amplification of that during COVID, and. I would say around it was around about May of May of 2020. So you know, we're, still the pandemic was relatively new. We were we were still in in lockdowns, and I really started to see much more of the marriage of the anti-vaccine movement with other sorts of political interest groups. So things that we might consider right-wing sort of fringe, for lack of a better word, uh, to very strong libertarian type groups, people that were very averse to government doing lockdowns. A lot of the MAGA crowd that got tied into that as well. And what what was very interesting with this, and and I know Jennifer and I have sort of exchanged exchanged a few notes uh, online watching these things. Is they're all very public and they very much like to post uh, all their information, which is in some ways makes it very easy to observe what's going on. But some of these events were co-organized, were were very heavily organized by anti-vaccine activists. 
which was very interesting because now you were starting to see this a much more explicit convergence of the anti-vaccine movement with Christian nationalist type groups, some sort of separatist, sovereign citizen type groups, even local level elected officials and people who wanted to run for office as they were learning that uh, really, at least in California, that really local government is really where they could have a, have a big impact on, on various issues. And so we not only we could see where this would be sort of the infusion of anti-vaccine sentiment to sort of a larger, maybe anti-public health Anti, and anti-government because public health is government. And so by design, anything public health basically does is something that government is doing. And in this case, these are groups that are generally not happy with government doing anything. Yeah. Uh, they want to be left alone and, you know, and, all, and all these, you know, do not want mandates. But yeah. we started to see this kind of convergence of, of different issues that you could say were much more sort of broader anti-public health. Particularly at that time period, there was no vaccine that was still getting developed in labs. And so issues around lockdown, other sorts of public health measures like contact tracing and, and these other things that would be impacting, you know, let's open the economy, what's going on, this is hurting people is, is really very heavily the argument. And even the anti-vaccine types, we started to see them sort of merging into these other areas as well. Now, someone could say, well, maybe that's sort of expanding their market, expanding their yeah. brand in a sense. The way California kind of was set up in terms of legislation, they lost the last fight and there really wasn't much else for them to go with. So in a way, COVID did present uh, an opportunity for them. We definitely saw merchandising and other sorts of uh, organizational uh, alliances. And so it's been, it's not to say that all of this is new per se. I mean, we did see definitely signs of this. We saw a shifting of the anti-vaccine movement to being a lot more sort of right wing in its orientation and over the past uh, number of years. And But now you're really, I mean, COVID in a sense, was that fuel for the fire? You know, just spray that lighter fluid right onto just that burgeoning flame that now is ignited and hit so many other interest groups and made it into much more of, of a coalition with a much larger audience uh, for potential impact. You know, it's interesting because um, before COVID, vaccine hesitancy and vaccine refusal have been largely places where the left meets the right in the same way we see with survivalism, living off the grid, rugged, you know, sort of rugged individualism spans the political spectrum. And that was true when I was doing my research also, that I talked to people across the political spectrum. So, and I guess in context, there's really a small number of people who define themselves at any time as anti-vaccine ideologically. Mm. But what was concerning is that prior to COVID, what we saw was as many as about 30% of American parents who would say they were not anti-vaccine, they just weren't fully vaccinating their children. And they didn't describe it as ideological, they thought of it as strategic, right? They thought of it like, I've, I, I'm delaying vaccines, I'm coming up with an alternative schedule, I'm accepting a couple, but not all of them. I've done none, but I'm going to do them later when my child can participate in the decision, right? Like we saw all these different manifestations of, but the outcome is the same, which is that people were not vaccinating their children. And once you Wait, get- what to, was that percentage? What was that? Did you, did I hear 30%? Somewhere between 20 to 30% of American parents are not following vaccine recommendations prior to COVID. And when you get to 20 or 30% of American parents, that's not a fringe position anymore, right? That's a conversation. So that's really like where I got interested in this conversation. And really the fringe side of the vaccines never are necessary or never safe and never work is a numerically small number that's been around forever since the smallpox epidemic. And that group to me is a little bit less compelling because we can absorb two, three, 4% of the population not participating in public health. What we cannot do is stave off infectious disease when 20 or 30% of the population doesn't yeah. participate. So I think thinking about that as a framework in which COVID arrived is really important. And also that there was an increasing distrust of expertise 
that we were seeing throughout the Trump administration mm. most clearly. So that people heading up government and agencies were not experts. People who were experts were already seen with suspicion as government insiders and therefore not reliable because they've spent their careers in public service. And all of that predated COVID. And I think what's always important to remember is that pandemics don't create new problems, but they magnify the ones we already have. Yeah. And so the organizations that opposed vaccine mandates in the U.S., and this is true in Canada also, they're not describing themselves as anti-vaccine organizations. They describe themselves as parents' rights organizations, as informed mm. consent organizations. And then I'd say this latest generation defines themselves as health freedom is the vocabulary they're now using and liberty. And none of us are opposed to informed consent or liberty or freedom, right? So it's a really persuasive vocabulary. And what I saw just to tack on to Rich's story is that, you know, he's talking about May 2020. By summer of 2020, we were heading into the Republican National Convention, if you recall. And the belief at the time was that there would be a platform written at the RNC. There was not. They went with the 2016 platform. But at the time, there was anticipation of the platform. What was happening in Western states in particular was that the local Republican caucuses in states were passing resolutions condemning any mandate for a vaccine as a condition of employment. And they were passing these resolutions in response to a hypothetical because there was yet not yet a vaccine and there were absolutely no proposals for mandates. But also the way they were written was very broad to say that would then encompass childhood vaccines. It would encompass influenza vaccines. It would encompass any vaccines. And that was we could see those in Texas and Colorado and Wyoming. We could see these states sort of putting those together. And it was really being argued as resistance to government totalitarianism, right, to this kind of state overreach. And so that was already seeding the conversation in ways that's really powerful. The other chapter I would add on, and Rich saw this also, is that there was a very intentional effort in the summer of 2020 to link all of these claims of freedom and liberty to the Black Lives Matter movement. And so there was aggressive, like there was aggressive examples of anti-vaccine meetings or rallies where white protesters would sing, we shall overcome. There was a very deliberate effort to seed the words Tuskegee and vaccine into tweets. You can look at like, there's an absolute sharp cliff, you know, of where it like rises suddenly out of nowhere that these two terms start showing up together. Hmm. And it resonated on the left in a different way than a lot of these claims were resonating on the right. But what I think it did successfully was see doubt in the processes and then Rich and I talk a lot about the industry that then surrounds these claims. And so, for example, the largest organization in the U.S. that opposes vaccine mandates, the National Vaccine Information Center, one of its largest funders is Joe Mercola, who has been listed as one of the disinformation dozen. But he has the most successful online store where you can buy things like tanning beds to increase your vitamin D intake, and you can buy his special fish oil. And he's both financially supports this organization and then it loops back into sales, into this kind of wellness claim industry that is entirely based on undermining confidence in healthcare and medicine so that you believe wellness and vitamins and your personal control of your health will then protect you. And therefore you can dismiss mainstream medicine entirely. Mm. And that is the business model. That's very interesting. Oh, Richard, do you have something to add? 
Oh, I was going to say, just to then add on to that too, then in January, January 5th, 6th, right around that time, we saw Washington, D.C. rallies with anti-vaccine activists showing up on the promo bill, if you will, with along with other types of health freedom, health liberty types, other types of, again, spheres, and even people like Stuart Rhodes of the Oath Keepers and Roger Stone, even, you know, as these sites are scheduled to appear. So again, this idea that there was this kind of growing kind of coalition, or at least where the agenda was being picked up, we start to see this more and more. You guys talk about politics and cultural entrepreneurs, and that's a very interesting topic. I remember during the beginning of the pandemic, I watched the movie Contagion. You know the movie Contagion? And I remember when I first saw Contagion in the theaters, the Jude Law character struck me as unrealistic. I was like, come on, no one's going to do that. No one's going to buy this type of garbage. I didn't really think that the president would be the Jude Law character when it got real. But in all seriousness, there seem to be a lot of entrepreneurs who are using fears of vaccine as a way of engaging followers and making sales, getting that merch going for the podcast, etc. Who are these entrepreneurs? I assume there are some very big names who are really at the forefront, who are doing great right now. Who are they? You know, there's been an effort to really identify, and there is a, you know, a report, there, there's some research that points to what they call the disinformation dozen, that it's worth recognizing that when we talk about disinformation and misinformation, we really mean different things in that, you know, the idea that there's people who are intentionally sowing doubt, who are intentionally spreading information that is knowably false is a really different process than people who are speculating or reposting, who are just trying to share information with friends and family because, and we know when there's a lack of official information, those gaps are always filled with unofficial information. And so people try to share to help each other make decisions. But the idea that there's this active effort to create disinformation. And so if you remember, I mean, time moves very strangely. So I realized like spring 2020 now feels like 10 years ago. Yeah. There was this moment of this documentary pandemic, this yeah. dis sort of discredited scientist who had been dismissed from a job for research malpractice. And Judy Megavit. Yeah, Judy Megavit. And she was part of this documentary that was produced by some big hitters in this world. It was very well produced. It was visually beautiful, it looked very professional, and it alleged that the COVID pandemic was invented for political reasons and economic reasons. It's untrue. And I think I got that, I think I saw it posted or sent to me 30 times in 24 hours before it started getting taken down online. And that kind of intention is really specific. I think then like if we fast forward in the vaccine era, <laughs> so the like post December, 2020 era, the new forms of this, I wrote a piece for the Washington Post on ivermectin and why people could reject vaccines and then seek out ivermectin, which is an anti-parasitic medication that works if you have parasites, but not so much for COVID. So one, I'll just say, if you ever need to know what average conservative white men in America think, write something on ivermectin because they will all email you and tell you. But um, putting that aside, <laughs> um, you know, putting that aside, the, the question about ivermectin is really interesting because Good. what it came with, even though the manufacturer of ivermectin says, please stop using our product this way. The federal government is begging people. We've seen poison control reports, although some may have been overestimated, you know, thinking about like, what does this mean that people are seeking out this medication from veterinary supply stores and so forth, right. is that there is an industry of physicians who will prescribe this for telehealth visits at $200 an hour. 
and they will provide you nutritional supplements and IV infusions and all of these promises that you personally can control your health if you pay them to help you get the things that they say will work. And where I'm sympathetic is that some of these strange and seemingly illogical solutions sometimes start with real things. Like there were some early studies that ivermectin could be promising, and then they didn't hold up to scientific scrutiny because the peer review process works, right? And people can't replicate your findings. They evaluate your findings. The preprint that was posted, which as an edit, I guess one of the things that's really challenging is we just saw this explosion of preprints during COVID because it was unfolding quickly. No one wanted to wait for peer review. And at the same time, it means lots of things that couldn't survive peer review were put in the public domain. Like it's sort of a Rorschach test, right? Where you either think the pulling down of those preprints means that the peer review process is working and science is learning, or you think it's a conspiracy to silence minority voices and to punish those who speak against pharmaceutical interests. And that's where those things like ivermectin, even like the overstatement of remdesivir, we've seen a lot of these, you know, sort of magical cures that don't hold up to be magic as falling into that divide between either I trust that the science is evaluating itself and learning, or I think this reveals the larger conspiracy. And I'll just add that I saw that in my research around Andrew Wakefield, who was the British gastroenterologist who alleged that vaccines cause autism in 1998. And when that work was discredited and he lost his medical license, I then went to an organization meeting in the course of my research where I watched him get a humanitarian award for speaking truth to power. And so that it's not, again, not a new phenomenon, but we're definitely seeing it accelerate in really powerful ways. Yeah, in some ways, in Wakefield's case and others, I guess a third act in a way. But like Jennifer said, I mean, really, Wakefield is viewed as martyr for the cause. But even other people who might have been seen as a little bit more fringe are really, I think, getting, in many respects, a wider audience. So Robert F. Kennedy Jr. would be a good example of this. Certainly had a very legitimate career in environmental activism and really jumped the shark when he moved into the vaccine world. And over time, this has really become a, a key focus for him as well as as well as children's health. So, of course, that's going to be a very appealing thing to certain audiences. You know, the classic, what about the children? Uh, uh, Simpsons line comes, comes to mind. Oh, and, and I mean, Rich, it, right. His organization is called the Children's Health Defense, health defense yeah. Fund, exactly. right? Who's not supportive of children's exactly. health defense, right? right. So yeah, what, what's, what's wrong with us, right? Um, and so, um, you know, and even his family has spoken out against him in, in public op-eds and, and the like. But, uh, right, uh, I, I got tagged on a tweet two days ago that apparently his book, it's really basically a takedown of Fauci. Anthony Fauci is, uh, I guess it's on the top of the New York Times bestseller list. And before he really was having a difficult time, I guess he had a meeting with Trump at the beginning of the Trump administration and was really hoping that this was going to get him some position to advise on, on vaccine policy. And that never came about. So so in many respects, with the pandemic movie and his sort of role with that, this pandemic two, there was a there was a follow up. Uh, that, oh, there's a sequel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah. <laughs> And, and his various uh, activist sort of activities during COVID, you know, he really has expanded his audience in many respects and, and gotten more sort of uh, cloud influence. But him and Wakefield, I mean, those are not the only two. There's very much these national level figures, National Vaccine Information Center. I'm, I'm forgetting now the, the doctor that run or the uh, activist that runs it now. 
who she, uh, she was around actually before even RFK Jr. and, and goes back many, many years. Barbara Lowe Fisher. Barbara Lowe Fisher. Thank you very much. Yeah. Yeah. And she's, I mean, I write about her in my book. I'll just say like doing field work and following, you know, organizations around. I have pictures of her and me together because I think she thought I was like her biggest fan because I showed up at all her meetings. <laughs> um, but, you know, she's really interesting because she's an example of the history of the modern anti-vaccine movement in that in 1984, there was a documentary that showed on NBC called Vaccine Roulette that talked about possible harms that the whole cell pertussis vaccine, which is no longer used, might be causing in children. And enough parents saw this and felt that it represented their experience with their own children who had developed health complications after a vaccine, that they called the NBC studios, the NBC studios put them all in touch. Barbara Lowe Fisher was one who was a libertarian by political orientation. She started hosting meetings in her living room of parents who called themselves DPT, Dissatisfied Parents Together, playing off the name of the diphtheria pertussis uh, tetanus vaccine. And they were really successful in changing federal law around vaccine monitoring of creating a fund to compensate people for vaccine injuries. I mean, they really were instrumental in some real policy changes. And then over time, that organization started shifting. Some of the original members left, and then she really grew into this kind of new space. But she was really came to this motivated by the belief that her own child at the age of two had been harmed by a vaccine and really feeling like parents are never encouraged to question doctors. And what's really important about that story in the mid-1980s is that there's no way of thinking about the growth of that anti-vaccine movement without also thinking about the way it really builds on the women's health movement, the way it builds on a lot of community, you know, HIV activism and ACT UP in the 1980s, right? Thinking about the sort of broader landscape in which individuals and groups began questioning medical dominance. And so one of the things I always struggle with in my writing and in my thinking is that there are important examples of when consumer groups and patient advocacy groups have spoken back to medicine and spoken back to science that has made practice better, right? And that's really important to think about which then brings me to the question, like, how is this different, right? Like, why then do we put them in a different box? And I think that's a really important zone for us all to kind of think through as sociologists, because it's messy to really start to think about how infectious disease is different, how we pull risk differently, and then, you know, how do we hold institutions accountable for public safety on both sides, I think is really important. And even, you know, even within medical sociology, uh, you know, there's a small but very interesting area of, of health social movements, and it very much has a, a normative angle to it in the sense of the topics. It's not blaming the scholars who work in that area, but the topics that we focus on, build on what Jennifer just said, you know, very much are these things that, that we can get behind. They're about social justice. They're about addressing inequities, providing care and, and attention towards people who, who might otherwise have been ignored. And so... Really, this is of the same vein, but but we just don't, you know, we might not like the outcome or what the cause is. I just want, want to add on to that, too, thinking about the modern anti-vaccine movement. I mean, of course, it's hard to ignore the role of social media in terms of making it so much easier for their influence with it. But even in recent years, we think about like um, you know, Barbara Lowe Fisher's concerns around sort of science. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. kind of entered into the, the anti-vaccine fray kind of for the same motivations. There was, of course, the, the Wakefield controversies around the MMR vaccine causing autism. But over time, we really see with the anti-vaccine movement, particularly in recent years, Jennifer had alluded earlier about this um, thematic focus on sort of health liberty and health freedom. And we really start to see that in recent years with the anti-vaccine movement, too, where it moved away from this kind of science-based argument of things. One could conjecture, I guess, that so much of that science was getting discredited and you know, by 
good solid science, you know, the vaccines and, and their link to autism just was not there and, and other sorts of concerns that really, and we see this also as they were moving much more to legislation and lobbying and whatnot, that this focus on health liberty makes it then more about philosophy. It's a philosophical kind of argument. And in that case, it's a lot harder to sort of debate. And you can very much get politicians on board with that who might think, hey, my, all my kids are vaccinated, but I, I can get behind that with my constituents because I believe too in like personal choice and freedom. And so there you have these sorts of willing allies or some who maybe might be less than willing, but see a crowd show up outside the state house and logically think, oh my goodness, is that really what my constituents really are? I better, I better do something or I'm going to be out of office in you know, next election. So you two are by far the people who know more about this community than anybody I know. So in your view, after all you've seen, how should we be dealing with this problem? Like, what are we doing wrong and what do you think we should be doing? You know, one of the things that I've become clear on is that for the small number of people who are unpersuadable, it's probably not a fruitful engagement. But when I think about the 20 to 30% of American parents who really just want to be good parents and do what they think is best for their children or for their families or for themselves, they really feel like they're working hard on this decision. And I heard it over and over again, you know, that they quote unquote, do their own research. And what they mean is they do research the way we all do research for consumer decisions, not the way we all do research for scholarship, but they gather information, they read online reviews, they talk to people they know, they learn from you know, people's experiences, and they accumulate a perspective. And that perspective is always heavily informed by the number of people they know who also don't vaccinate. And so we know vaccine hesitancy clusters in really powerful ways. So thinking about that group, that's the group that we call hesitant. That's the group that's persuadable. And it's absolutely over time shrunk when it comes to COVID vaccines. And so, you know, we saw early on 40% of people were like, I think I'm going to sit this one out and wait and see. And I think that's not an, an illogical response to a new kind of product because there are vaccines and there are pharmaceutical products that haven't worked out. And so, but we, once we got past that, that number shrunk. So thinking about those conversations, the part that can be really important to keep in mind is that there's no evidence that anyone has ever changed their mind by being called ignorant, anti-science or selfish. Like that's just not productive. But hearing what their concerns are is often useful. Like, hey, I read that according to the VARES data, which is the voluntary reporting system, I heard all these people died. And that's a conversation because we can say, like, that's actually not true. And here's what happened. And here's the limitations of VARES data. But here's what the other vaccine safety monitoring systems are showing. We can have those conversations. Sharing our own decisions can be really persuasive. Like, here's, I, I felt the same way. And here's why I made this decision. You know, here's how I wanted to be part of a solution. Here's the way I really wanted to be part of ending the pandemic or protecting vulnerable people in my community and having like, this is why I'm motivated by this. And I heard, I know from parents who said that they thought of themselves as really good people. And they were surprised that other people didn't agree because they do volunteer work. They're active in their church. They only eat organic. You know, they see themselves as in other ways generous. And so linking it to that can sometimes be a place to go. And then I think uh, we all have to sort of take a look at the echo chambers. I think one of the things that's really concerned me during COVID is that we no longer had a lot of opportunities to talk to people we don't already know well. And so our social networks got really small and you didn't have that like person on the airplane you randomly sat next to or the person at the bar you had a spontaneous conversation with or the person in line at a coffee shop you might talk to. And you know, even as we're starting to leave our houses again, 
I'm really aware of how much less small talk there is because everyone's wearing masks indoors or yeah. because there's just or they're on phones or they're on phones yeah. <laughs> and there's just fewer yeah. and or people are socially awkward because they've spent 20 months forgetting how to socially interact. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, but we don't have as many opportunities for cross pollination and those conversations. And that's meant that our information circles have gotten really small. And, you know, Rich mentioned this earlier about the ways that these sort of networks matter and, and the way these like conversations get really tightly woven. But trying to sort of loosen that a little bit, I think, is probably our challenge for 2022, right, is to sort of diversify our information circles and also to sort of get out, get, encourage other people to get outside their little bubbles. Rich, what do you think? What's been your walk away after this whole trauma? I, I have to admit it. There's times when I feel very overwhelmed with it. The well has been so poisoned when I, we haven't talked as much about sort of uh, really where media and really sort of this reciprocating policymaker, decision maker, sort of media exchange of messaging or feedback loop, I guess you could call it, you know, has really done a lot of harm. And it's very difficult to get that kind of genie back in the bottle now that it's been released. I do believe when I think about the broader kind of policy, one thing I really think we, we need to be thinking a lot more about is is about online information and policies around regulation and, and or pressure upon the social media industry in terms of what it will enable, what it, uh, what it will propagate or, and what it shouldn't. Yeah, I mean, the other thing is, too, we have to be thinking about these issues. There's there's very specific issues for different demographic groups as well. And so, you know, we've been, we've been equities in terms of vaccine uptake. And in those cases, you know, really outreach and ties with public health connections with local community leaders, people who already have that sort of trust and inroads is, is a good way to sort of rebuild that, that sort of trust, not making vaccination drives and other sorts of events the focus, but making them part of something else that's getting people together and getting them out. And so, hey, while you're here, we can get this done. Where people where people can actually visibly see other people getting it and realizing it's it's not that not that big a deal. But overall, I mean I, I just think in general, I think from a, at least thinking public health, public health really needs to have a very hard reckoning about uh, about communication. It's doing it in a pretty you could even say it's sort of web 2.0 kind of way. That we, you know, we really need to get with the times. And it's clear that a lot of these disinformation bad actors have really maximized the capacity for disseminating information online through social media and other means that really we're always in this kind of response mode to it. And public health is about prevention. So we really need to be getting ahead of the game and thinking about ways to better address that. It's true. You know, 20 years ago, you needed to convince both an editor and the person who owned the printing press that your these views were worth putting out. And now you can reach 20,000 people with just a click of a mouse and no budget, and no filter. So for sure. But before we go, it was Thank a pleasure you. having you on today. A real pleasure meeting you. It was nice to finally meet you. Yeah. I've uh, heard about you, known about you for years. So it was a pleasure meeting you. And Richard, I always love seeing you. I follow you on Twitter. You're one of my go-to people and uh, always, always smart, insightful stuff. And it's just such a pleasure to see you again. And I hope we're able to uh, cross paths. Uh, all of us, all three of us, uh, once we get back to, to normal life. Thanks, Joey. Thanks so much for having us. You're such us. a wonderful cheerleader, too, for sociology, so it's just great to be here. No, <laughs> I'm a fan of the topic. <laughs> and maybe maybe we'll get to do a retrospective someday. Like, remember back when vaccines were a problem? Oh. <laughs> yeah, let's hope. Yeah, unless unless we're saying, God, wasn't it great when vaccines were our only problem? <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> hey, uh, thank you very much for coming on today. Thanks. You've been listening to the Annex, a sociology podcast. Special thank you to today's guest, 
Richard Carpiano from the University of California, Riverside, and Jennifer Wright from the University of Colorado, Denver. We're on the web, theannexpodcast.com, on Twitter at Socianex, and on Facebook, The Annex Sociology Podcast. The Annex is a production of the Queen's Podcast Lab. For more information, visit queenspodcastlab.org. Our production team is led by Anthony Borelli and includes Colby Corley, Marissa Gill, Medai McFarlane, Hanson Pena, and Oscar Rosario. Music is by Lena Orsa. I'm Joe Cohen. Thanks for listening.